I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> Knives Out. I'm Detective Lieutenant Elliot, and this is Trooper Wagner. We just want to ask a few questions. We understand the night of his demise, the family have gathered to celebrate your father's 85th birthday. How was it? Hello. The party? Pre my dad's death? Oh, it was great. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to request that you all stay until the investigation is completed. What? Can we ask why? Has something changed? No. No, it hasn't changed, or no, we can't ask. I'm gonna live till I die. You think one of his family walls, walls. killed? Is that what you're suggesting? You all love twisting the knife into one another. Up your ass. Oh, very nice. Matter of fact, eat shit. How's that? Eat shit. Eat shit. Eat shit. Smug smile. Definitely eat shit. You know something. Spill it. Do not listen unless you've seen the movie. You have been warned. This one is essential viewing, and you will lose where we are unless you know the score. With us, we have an irascible family of sleuths. Detective Victoria Luna B. Grieve. Hello, and thank you for having me. Detective Chris Chipman. Howdy, howdy. Detective Maya Santandrea. Good day, sir. Detective Karu Nagisa. That's some heavy-duty conjecture. And Detective Debbie Morse. You all love twisting the knife into one another. My God, we're going to just be doing the accent the whole way through. <clears throat> this episode was commissioned by Edward Burke. And it's a good thing too, Edward, because this film is so rich and complex that even though Sharon and I love it, we would probably have held off on tackling this one for years. So this commission made it happen for everyone. Here goes. Also... Don't mean to twist the knife, but it's going to be hard to do Clue now. We have had repeated requests for a commission of the 1985 Jonathan Lynn film over the years, and while we like it, especially Sharon, flames on the side of my face. Neither of us love Clue the way that we love Knives Out. And as far as the baseline for quirky, comedic murder mysteries go, there's a new candlestick in the study. Or to put it another way, it's 2020 and we all deserve to see a film about a good-hearted medical professional immigrant and a bunch of assholes who are absolutely fine with poor people sacrificing themselves to keep them happy. Mr. Blanc, I know who you are. I read your profile in The New Yorker. I found it delightful. I just buried my 85-year-old father who committed suicide. Why are you here? I'm here at the behest of a client. Who? I cannot say, but let me assure you this. My presence will be ornamental. You will find me a respectful, quiet, passive observer of the truth.
So let's get straight to structure, which is how Ryan Johnson started on the story. How does this Knives Out reorder, overturn, and defy the established tropes of the murder mystery? We will start with the structural side of it, which is, I don't think this is a three-act structure. Uh, can anyone tell me what it, uh, if it's more than that? Like if it's a five-act structure or something like that? Is, mm. that, is that where you're going? I suppose it would have, to, we'd have to place where the new acts begin. Mm. When you asked gotcha. that before, I was trying to figure out where the yeah. where the corner turns mm. happen, but it it feels, my, my instinct says it feels like a four-act structure because of the way it goes back on itself, so you kind of end up with a box. Mm. Or a donut, mm. if you will. Well, indeed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with a hole in the middle. With um, a smaller donut in it yeah so so what would this four act donut uh comprise like usually an act change occurs when something happens that cannot be gone back from yeah usually like it's it's strong if the protagonist makes a decision based on what they've been handed okay um anyone can answer this one by the way Right. So I would think that the first act is just the establishing um, bits where we see the murder, we get the um, interviews with all the family, and uh, that we see ends... the aftermath of the murder. Yes, the aftermath <laughs> of the murder. Yeah. <laughs> we see the a- we see the aftermath of the murder. We see the uh, interviews with all the family, and then that ends when Benoit Blanc and the other two um, inspectors leave the house, basically with the uh, baseball going through the window. Ah, I had a different break point. Okay, Okay, uh, you can state your reasons for this. The reason why I believe that is the case is because that is when we stop listening to what the uh, family has said, Mm. and they stop becoming the focus of the film, and instead... Uh, Benoit Blanc becomes the focus of the film and leads us into it being a team up between him and Marta, Hmm. who at this point is just, yeah, is sort of a background character, has just had that one little scene, and that's about it. Hmm. So the second act. That is kind of where it shifts more to being focused on Marta and her side of the story. Mm. Him investigating, and this is where you get all of her neat little tricks to sort of undermine his Mm. ability to actually find things out. And that's actually really an interesting, whoa, that's actually a really uh, Uh. good observation because it's the family in the form of Richard throwing the ball to Blanc. Mm. Like, it's the passing of the perspective at that point like you were saying like in a very literal way nice uh-huh. and that that function that that ball um is what closes the loop at the end ah oh, you might be right then I, I i had the um exact break point where it switches in switches gears to after this which is where we get to see Harlan and Marta together in what is the past tense to us, but it starts to play out in what feels like present tense as we see the incident leading up to the... Um, it's it's a murder plus an accidental death, plus a suicide. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> it's not even... like You can't even just call it a murder. It's too tricky. Yeah, no, no it's not. It's... It's wild. Um, I would even go as far to say that it could be two to three. Um, I won't call them opposing. I I would call them parallel and intersecting three-act structures. It it kind of has a 
a Pulp Fiction-y kind of feel. Not that the order is out of whack Mm -hmm. so much as that what the movie decides to let you in on is out of whack. Um, So everybody, you know, you've got kind of Ransom and his story, which he becomes, you know, the third act's protagonist slash antagonist working with Marta, Mm. you know, where they switch protagonist antagonist back and forth from Benoit Blanc. But Benoit Blanc has his own three act structure to his story too. And then the family kind of has their own as well in that, you know, they go from losing to then we learn a lot about them to then they have everything taken away. And I, I love that those three structures can almost, you could almost make a whole movie with what they give you for all three of those stories and get a whole three act structure you know, uh, a um, a different focus, and I don't want to, like, um, blow this horn too early, but a different focus would do the, you know, keeping everybody as a red herring the whole time. Mm. But this movie gives you intentional looks, but still is able to have its red herrings instead of, like, leaving Marta completely out of the equation to keep the focus of the viewer is, oh, it must be the help, you know, it must be the butler, you know, it must be this, Mm -hmm. or it must be the alt-right troll son, or it must be Ransom. Mm. Instead, the movie is able to shift the focus around so much that there was even a moment in time, first time I watched this, where I thought until the movie revealed very quickly who done it, basically, um, that Benoit Blanc could have been a a suspect. Mm only from the way that he was so closely playing the police force um, and, you know, using their, like, um, fanboyism of him, at least from one of the two cops, to his favor. It it really did a wonderful way of turning all of that structure-wise on its head. Um, by like, you know, it, it's almost like um, the way the very first Saw did things. We know you've seen so many things like this that we're going to intentionally put the killer right in the front of your face at the beginning, and you're never going to figure it out. And, yeah. and I love when movies do that. They use your knowledge of the subject matter against you. They allow you to take really things cool. for granted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, was also thinking, I was also thinking with this one about uh, my favorite Hitchcock film, which is The Trouble with Harry. Mm-hmm. Um, ah, yes. Yeah, in yeah, which um, uh, The Trouble with Harry is that he's dead, and several of the characters believe that they are the ones who murdered him, but we as the audience are not sure which one it is, and it's a backwards mystery in that respect, and it's also got some hilarious bits where they're trying to hide the body, but, you know... Oh, uh, side note, folks. Sorry, Caro. Side note, folks. Please, can no one spoil any other mysteries while we're doing this? Don't anyone say the end of or murder on the Orient Express or anything. We want to keep mysteries as mm-hmm. other yeah. mysteries as evergreen as possible yeah. and only spoil the living hell out of this one. Exactly. Yeah. Sure. But yeah, so I was thinking very much in that respect, uh, particularly what ends up happening with this one. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, it reminded and, me a lot of trouble. Therapy. And I think Chris, that you're right about how the, the three act structures for almost every character, they almost overlap with each other, which is kind of a neat trick that the, that the movie pulls, but it also kind of puts the solution right in front of you, which I can't, like, I know other murder mysteries and whodunits have kind of done this sort of thing before. None immediately spring to mind, but it is kind of cool that the whole mystery they're trying to unravel is, is right there. They had the solution the whole time. Harlan committed suicide. Yeah, and also uh, one thing that I think that Ryan Johnson does really well um, structurally with this is that he has a good sense of 
taking the very obvious, making you not realize how obvious it is, and then being like, hey, here's the thing. It was right there in front of you this whole mm. time. You know, from the opening, opening, so, opening and closing shots, for example. Yeah. Yeah. In doing so, he makes the movie. The first time I watched it, my initial reaction was, wow, I loved that. And I loved how loose and like improv it almost felt just mm-hmm. because that's intentional. And then I went and watched it again. And I was like, no, this thing is as tight and is 100% intentional in everything it's showing as the best mysteries out there. The movie just makes you think it doesn't care. Yeah. <laughs> and and I, I love that. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of putting it. I want to push back a little bit on this three-act structure kind of thing, because as I'm, as I'm thinking it out in my head, I think this almost feels more like a, I don't want to say, say a stage play, but it's a three-act structure with a prolonged introduction, mm-hmm. as in the what what is being referred to as the first act is introducing all, like, our, our bevy of characters, our, our possible suspects in the first part, going up until, I like the idea of that ball being thrown through the window being almost the beginning of the first act proper where it introduces our main characters and uh gives you a little bit more of an introduction but it doesn't sit quite right quite the same way i mean marta's seat whenever she's providing her background in the beginning of that first act is literally in a different place than where it is when the family are speaking Mm. in that room and the cinematography is a little different too actually a lot different but the then that leads up until the reading of the will, which is when all chaos happens, and that's the beginning of the second act. And then that right after goes... Manuel Blanc throws the baseball again, mm-hmm. yeah, to the dog. Um, and then that all goes like crazy. It's a very like dark time. We have possibly the real a, a real murder happen, and then uh, the return to the house where Marta is has fully given up and. Uh, everybody else thinks that she's going to give up the inheritance that's the beginning of the third act and the third act is relatively short compared to the other ones but is also the parlor scene mm. which is the like Wherever paramount aspect of it yeah mm-hmm. so I, I i think that there's a strong case to be made that it's a three-act structure with an extended introduction so that we can know who we're dealing with because there are a lot of characters in this movie Mm-hmm. And they all have very clear motivations too. Like it, it's set up so that it literally could be any of them. They all have some kind of some kind of motive for wanting Harlan dead, or some reason why this would benefit them in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, which is kind of neat too. Is that they kind of lay yeah. it all out on the table. Like here's all your players. Here's any and all reasons why they could have to to have something against Harlan to want to wish him dead if this is in fact a murder instead of a suicide as it appears, but all of that kind of becomes inconsequential as you go through the rest of the film. It's re- it's really cool how how this is set up. Yeah. Plus, there's also the meta commentary aspect of it. We're looking at some of those uh, motivations and um, what's his name the. Uh, Lieutenant Elliot's. Lieutenant Elliot's oh, oh, yeah. weak sauce. Mm-hmm. That's a weak sauce motive. Cover me <laughs> in weak sauce over here. <laughs> <laughs> 
And I, I do, I do love that idea of the um, that second act, Victoria, being the chaotic one. Particularly if we're going to take this idea of the ball being kind of thrown to kick off the next section. If it's going to the dog, oh yes, it's going to be chaos for the rest of this. This ah, oh, that's uh-huh. good. Because it all goes to the dogs. It's all and, going to the dogs. And as I'm sure we'll talk about, because my comment about cinematography was why I'm even on the podcast, there's a real, real big shakeup in the way that they shoot it at that point that I think is masterful. So, which we can talk about when the time comes. Yeah. I, I had wanted to say, um, and not this is not specifically relating to the, the act structure but in relation to your more overall question about um about how it defies the conventions of the genre is with benoit blanc and how you know in the beginning he's very much the you know he's 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 playing up the caricature of the persona and he's you know he's he's riffing on poirot and very much and a little bit of sherlock holmes and very like you know those characters are always they're they're very arrogant and they're very um, <clears throat> like they've got it all figured out and they're like well, there's just one piece missing and it you know there's there's supremely confident but as it goes on like he's it's almost like he's so drawn into that he gets more humanized and at points he's also very confused. <laughs> Oh, yeah, he's trying to solve his own mystery as well. The mystery uh-huh. of who actually hired him for this job. Yeah, and, and I love that, like, he's, he doesn't, he plays at the arrogance, but he's not actually particularly arrogant. And also the fact that, obviously, I mean, it's Daniel Craig and the man's, you know, masterful actor. Amazing. But he's, the the fact that it, eventually he's fighting for Marta and he's he's in this because he recognizes you know even if even at points when they think she may have caused harm like he still recognizes that it you know her intent and that she's a good person and you know it was an accident constant sense of there has to be more to it than this no there has to be more to it than that no there has to be more Mm -hmm. to it than that yep yes (laughs) And, you, and it's, you rarely, you rarely have this character being so compassionate or empathetic in any time they've ever shown up before. Exactly, exactly. Basically, every character in this movie is proceeding with what they think is their own narrative, their own story. They all think that they're the protagonist in their own story, with the with two exceptions, Marta and Elliot. Mm-hmm. And I think that is extremely relevant because they're the two people of color in the, the main cast. Mm-hmm. Because there's a lot of political commentary, as I'm sure we'll get into, but every single one of the suspects, every member of the family, uh, Blanc, everyone is... is playing out some kind of storyline fantasy that they have built. Even Harlan is that way. Even Fran is that way. And that's really fascinating, actually, in retrospect. Everyone's playing their own game, and they can only see the board from their own corner. 
Or like what Harlan says at the very beginning, you play your own game for so long, you can't tell the difference between a real knife and a stage prop. Love that line. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That and becomes all... so important throughout the whole rest of the movie. <laughs> not, not only that, but all of them are in some way a stock type a, a type of stock character from the murder mystery mystery genre and and also part of just like modern day like we have the the instagram influencer with a line of like fashion products like her skincare regimen it, yeah it's yeah. Her, it's Gwyneth Paltrow it's, and it's Gwyneth Paltrow. Okay. Yes. 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 100% Joni is meant to be a stand-in for Gwyneth Paltrow. We we have a representative of kind of the archetypal alt-right troll, the, the Ben Shapiro type, but we also have an archetypal version of the kind of like too woke for her own good. Like they're both stereotypes. Like they're not like real people. Ransom, like they call him... Um, they, they literally call him a trust fund child, and that's pretty much how he acts. I mean, look at the house that he lives in. Um, all of the rest of them, like, try, like living up to these narratives of, like, bootstraps and American exceptionalism. And, like, yeah, I made my own company. We're just going to leave out the fact that my dad gave me a million-dollar loan to, to get it started. I or, wonder like, what that's referencing. Yeah. I mean, that's just <laughs> referencing most of the people in business in this country that think that they actually, like, are exceptional. It is, it is highlighting the story and the myth of meritocracy as through these characters because that is the myth and the story and the drama that they're all living as so many people in real life do. Exactly. And the only person who actually works hard is Marta. Yeah, for sure. And yeah. it's funny that Harlan even mentions, like, I think he says this to Walt. It's the uh, character played by Michael Shannon. He's like, oh, I did you a huge disservice by not giving you the chance to build something of yourself. I just handed all of my work and all of my publishing, you know, rights and everything to you. But he doesn't recognize that that's the way they all are. All of them have turned out that way. It's not just Walt. It's every single member of this family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why he was cleaning house uh, that yes. night with all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I a, a lot of people um, that I hear talk about this movie, talk about the caricature and stereotype of all the characters, um, w- which I agree with. And I said, you know, how they're perfect stand-ins for the archetypes of the mystery movie. But what Johnson did that was so brilliant is in making them stereotypes and setting it in the movie never comes out and says where it's taking place, but he filmed it and set it in obvious rich suburb of Boston, New England. This is old money, old college money, old Norfolk County. That's very rich. (laughs) That house, Uh I've seen that house. I've driven by the house they filmed the movie at. You know, it's so authentic. And the family, because of that, feels so real. You either have families that are actually that family or you have families like mine who the elders of the family with all their kids carried themselves like they were that family. They had some big Kennedy-like fortune, which they really didn't. They just had themselves, you know, and, and their their house, and the house was so important, and the patriarch and the matriarch were so important. And the interplay, the way these characters talk to each other and act towards each other, even though it's really stereotypical, felt so real. It actually cut deep, because I actually have two 
members of my family that have kids and one kid is basically an alt-right troll and the other one is the too woke for her own good girl and they oh, sound no. just like these kids <laughs> wow. like it's the same conversations <laughs> and the way the parents fight and like you know the the lady who mer- married into the family and then whose husband who was the actual heir died and it's kind of like the floaty, bubbly, like, oh, they're my rock. I just get along so well. And they all actually despise and, like, you know, don't oh, like yeah. having her around. I've they seen see her as a parasite. Yeah. She's like a yeah. leech that's just mm-hmm. sucking the blood out of this family. It's so, uh-huh. oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Chris, as somebody that uh, was born and raised just outside of Boston, I was like, oh. whoa, this hits home for me, too. Like, they, and, and Johnson, I forget if Johnson's local or if I can't remember, but I know I a lot remember. of the past are. But there's just something you can't. You can't fake the authenticity of that. Like, somebody gets it. (laughs) Well, and you still, even so, even with all of these care, all of the family members being, you know, to some degree loathsome, you still get some humanizing moments for multiple of them. Jamie Lee Curtis's character, Linda. Linda. Her, the little moment of her with the dogs. At one point, she and Don Johnson pull Mm, up. mm. And the dogs come up to greet her, and she's like, hello, babies, and whatever. And it's very much, like, it's very genuine and a very real moment. Those dogs are an excellent judge of character. If you watch the dogs, they love Marta. They hate Ransom. They hate Ransom. Uh-huh. They always Ryan Johnson her. said the best acting in the entire movie is Chris Evans pretending he doesn't love dogs. When he <laughs> yeah. is, in fact, a golden retriever in an overcoat and sunglasses. <laughs> He's so mean to them when he comes up. He's like, "Eh, get away from me, get away. Um, And the other thing I like about Linda's character, too, is straight out out of the gate when they're interviewing her at the beginning, she says that, oh, yeah, me and dad, we all had these little games. He loved his little games. And if you knew how to play them, well, you know, you were in. And it kind of, it sounds a bit of bullshit to begin with. But then at the end, there's that little payoff where, she sees that blank piece of paper and knows exactly what to do to read the message. And I thought that was such a nice little touch of like, no, they actually did have kind of a special bond with each other. And she did understand how his mind worked. And I thought that was very, very touching. Which, as has been said, is where the baseball came to its landing, which is which ties in with exactly how Benoit Blanc handles facts and gathering of information. Indeed. It does seem to me that Linda was... Harlan's favourite and when she says that about if you if you could find a game to play and you played it his way then you could develop a relationship with him and if you look at how all of the family relate to Harlan it does seem like Linda is the only one who actually managed to establish a game with him and play it his way mm-hmm. Marta plays it her own way mm-hmm. um, as yeah. is reinforced uh, by they bicker Blanc. over go Exactly. Um, and I think Ransom has tried and failed. And yeah, I was about to that's... say a little, a little bit with him with the game of Go, but it's never quite... It's He's definitely not at the same level that Marta is. Absolutely. But none of the others really seem to have much of a, a relationship with Harlan where they've tried to... Um, to to play games with him, not in a sense of, of manipulating him, but trying to relate to him through a game. Mm. Not trying to connect to him. Exactly. By the way, a thousand years ago, someone, uh, two people said, I'm sure we'll get to that in a bit. You're going to have to get to it as you think it and as you say it. We This is too dense. It's too rich. We've only got two hours. If you think of something that, that relates to the thing and hope that it'll become up later, no, 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 no. Unleash it right now. You throw that baseball. <laughs> okay. okay. I, 
I've, I've got a uh, what's it called just a technical thing that Go I absolutely it. love that they did with this in the opening um, interviews because um, at least Jamie Lee Curtis's character had glasses on they had reflective surfaces. What they ended up doing was making a fake grid for the lighting setup so that they would look like the windows behind Blanc in the reflection in the glasses. Wow. Which I think is just the coolest idea, and I absolutely adore I can, that. I can check that off my list now. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> yeah. I, I had that, like, circled. Talk about this. That's awesome. Uh, Victoria, oh, wow. you mentioned something political, but you were like, we'll get to that in a minute. It's, it's now a minute. Let's get to it. I also mentioned the cinematography. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So the political thing, I... God, there's so much. But uh, specifically, okay, there's two things. Watching the movie, I'm reminded of two other films, uh, Get Out and Mm. um, Sorry to Bother You. Both of which feature Detective Lieutenant Elliot, Lakeith Stanfield, and in Sorry to Bother You, it's a starring role. Sorry to Bother You is specifically because he's in it, and he seems to be the one least interested in all of this other bullshit. (laughs) But but the Get Out, like, the family in that reminds me in a weird way of this family where they probably think that they're progressive, but they're just, you know, considering both sides. Like, I'm not as bad as Jacob. He's an alt-right troll. But, you know, I think that this guy in office has some really good ideas. That conversation that they have, like, feels... I literally wrote a note down that it feels like some of the conversations I've had with my coworkers, Mm. and it's disgusting. (laughs) But... uh, Side note, do you know how difficult it was for me to so wholeheartedly agree with Joni at that point? This oh, yeah, business that's, hippie? that's one of the things. Like, mm-hmm. Joni may be an idiot and she may be completely full of herself, but in this particular case, she happens to be right. Mm. No one's 100% of an asshole 100% of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. Even uh... I can think of some people that are 100% of an asshole 100% of the oh, time. Oh, no, I mean in the film. Because oh, Ryan Johnson oh, 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 writes oh. better characters than real life. Yeah, even Ransom is like... Well, I mean... Uh, I think it, He's I think funny. The, for Jacob being a, a 100% of an asshole 100% of the time, but he's also like... 13 so we can mm, give him a yeah. little bit of a pass for being so yeah, young maybe weird. i went i went to junior high school with jacob like you know what i mean like i knew that kid mm. and yeah. you know 20 years ago oh god now that would be 25 years ago you know a kid that ran around and especially in a catholic school where mm. i was and got away with being able to like say nazi type things mm. um was what did they say? Less, what were the overheard uh, words by the Nazi child masturbating yeah. in the bathroom? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like now, nowadays, nowadays that kid would be expelled, right? But then that One was kind of just laughed off. And, and I've, I've caught back up with this kid, and all of that is like, gone, like he's like, yeah, no, I, that was not good. And it's like, he kind of still did it, though. <laughs> but, you know, I, re, that kid, you know, that kid may have a life ahead of him. He might grow out of that. I'm not saying it's right, but Ransom does not grow out of Ransom. Ransom mm. is so brilliantly played by Chris Evans because he tricks you as an audience mm. member into believing that maybe he's the outlier. Yeah, maybe he's big, the good yeah. person that's just maybe misunderstood. Maybe he's the one good one. At the point oh. he turns up in the film, if he'd been in Despite earlier... all of the evidence being that he is a unrepented asshole. Yeah. If but it, the... The thing that you cannot, like, that, that cannot be separated from this is that what every single person who saw this movie was like, oh, that's Captain America. And I, I think, mm. obviously, yes, Chris Evans is incredibly charming. Yes, he's incredibly charming, and, uh, you know, he plays a character amazingly, and 
yeah, it makes you forget that the character's an asshole. But I think also part of that is the fact that this is Captain America. He can't be that bad. Yeah, so, he's been a good guy for so long. It always reminds me of his role in Scott Pilgrim, where he's literally kiss out of Scott. And as he's holding him down, he turns to Ramona. He seems nice. <laughs> Go, yeah, yeah. Wait a minute, I mean, wasn't it his stunt doubles at that time? Yeah, at that point, that Scott was having um, to fight all the but, stunt So doubles. I actually, uh, interestingly, from a meta-contextual level, I don't know if any of you have seen the special edition Blu-ray of this. Yes. But on... The back, there's that the, the knife circle. Mm-hmm. Like it's actually like a cutout. Like there's a there's an opening where the barcode is. If you put the Blu-ray in the wrong way around, Chris Evans's face is in the middle of that. <gasps> oh my god! Wow. <laughs> so I I had my I had my suspicions even my first viewing of it because I noticed that. Nice. Well spotted. <laughs> well, to to go back, um. To, and, and I want to, you know, um, I forget who it was wanted to talk about cinematography. I want them to be that able was to get to that because that's one of my favorite bits. But, one, you know, saying earlier how the movie doesn't seem to care, um, it makes you think it does. I, I loved watching it the first time because I actually screamed out at the screen, this is supposed to be a murder mystery. They just showed us what happened. Mm. Like, how can I be interested in this anymore? And then the movie yeah. went, oh, you're going to be interested. All right. Don't you worry. <laughs> Ryan Johnson mentioned in the uh, commentary that there is a danger in a whodunit of an audience becoming passive uh, if they feel that it's going to play out by rote and like every you're, you're being given clues at the beginning you're 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 trying to take note in all the interviews and you're like right how are they sitting what are they saying what little bit of tidbit of information could you glean from this and then the average audience member eventually just sits back on their hands and goes well I'm not going to work this out there's a brilliant detective afoot. He, it is always a he, will work this shit out for me. And at the end, I can go, oh. So he went out of his way from the very beginning to defy that and show you the murder. And then specifically show you, you know, enough about how it happened that you can take stuff for granted, like we mentioned earlier. And then the donut hole that uh, Blanc talks about is actually like a Hitchcock thriller in the middle of a murder mystery. So that second act, everything that Marta's trying to keep covered up, that's the, you know, is it going to come crashing down on her or not? That's the film within the film. Because the audience's investment at that point is not in who committed the murder and Mm. finding that out. It's in, we really hope Marta doesn't get caught Mm. at this point. The fact that Ransom comes in around about that point as well, and you've gotten to know the family, and you, they're, they're all, you know, comic, comically asshole-ish. Uh, and I was Im- almost immediately reminded of the Bluths by way of Wes Anderson. And, uh, yes. like, th- these people have all been just terrible. And then Ransom comes in and then just casually sits. Like, everyone else has been hyper-defensive, especially around Blanc. And he just sort of, he's just, like, leaning back, scoffing biscuits the whole time. 
and then, you know, comes out with, eat shit, eat shit, eat shit, definitely eat shit. And, like, we can't help but laugh and love this irreverence while he riles everyone up. So, as, as someone said earlier... I eating one iota of shit. That's it, Michael Shannon said that. Uh, because he's okay. then shown this to the, the Rotten family, we really want to believe that even though he's like a bad boy version of Chris Evans, he's on the level and that we... we you know, so when he gets in with Marta, we believe we then believe because because our goodwill extends this far, oh, you tricked her. Well let's hope that's the only thing Trixie about you and that you two kind of solve the case well, we together. Want, we want yeah. her to have a friend at that point. We want yeah. her to have somebody who is on her side and although obviously she does develop a rapport with Blanc, hmm. ultimately he is her antithesis. He is her antagonist. If he finds out the truth, yeah. then she is done for. So we can't really want their relationship to become too close. It's only when it gets to the point where he um, is is evidently on to what's going on and then that's where that other twist in the relationship comes that they do start to become uh, in cahoots with each other. And what sort of detective do we have here? I mean, consider Blanc against Holmes, Poirot, Columbo, Nancy Drew, Spender. How is he different and what does that do to the story? Well, I think that um, on in this particular film, at the very least, what makes him different is that he's not trying to solve this murder. That's not he's trying murder. to figure out why he was hired. Mm. That is his mystery. The murder itself, or the suicide, or whatever it is, is sort of incidental to that. His focus is on there is a puzzle that needs to be solved, and therefore I am going to do it. And the solving of that also uncovers the actual murderer. Yes. I observe the facts without biases of the head or heart. I determine the arc's path, stroll leisurely to its terminus, and the truth falls at my feet. It was absolutely genius marketing that the whole scene of Chris Evans going, eat shit, eat shit, eat shit at each family member, that that was, I think, the first marketing the movie had. Because <laughs> I remember when that went viral on Twitter last fall, and like I, like everyone else, was was like... When does this come out? I have to see this. <laughs> yeah. It was it was pure whoever who whatever marketing person came up with that deserves a bonus because mm. that was genius. Back to Benoit Blanc, they give him a level of humanism and fallibility. He he shows up in the movie and immediately seems like he comes from somewhere else, and that's the point. But as we learn more about him, we learn quickly that he's He's goofy. He he's not perfect. He he makes mistakes. He doesn't have it already answered. Even though you know we find out later that something the movie shows us really early is the way he found out that it was Marta and didn't need like that wasn't enough to make him go yeah but there's more to this I'm not just going to arrest her now you know he he knew that but I love that like workhorse like blue collar gentleman sleuth thing he has going where it genuinely seems like he actually likes doing the work mm. it's yeah. not like a, oh my arrogance is just going to say that i don't need to care he's putting his time in they show him later you know in car chases with the police and you know trying to figure it out i love the bit where marta's big moment of finding the the housekeeper and her dying from the morphine injection is all happening while he's casually sitting outside listening to yeah. his headphones. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's just wonderful. 
how yeah. how much they humanize him and don't like because any other movie would keep him secretive too. If it was Sherlock Holmes, they wouldn't be showing you every moment of of him, you know, tripping or or doing anything else. It would just be the perfect moments. Yeah. Same thing even with James Bond, for that matter. Yeah. He certainly wouldn't be admitting to everybody that he actually doesn't know what he's doing there. He <laughs> yeah. doesn't actually know why he's there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, An so, envelope of cash. <laughs> also, though, to harken back to a previous conversation, he is genre savvy in a diegetic way. Mm-hmm. Like he talks about, he, he he references a lot of other detective work. He calls Marta Watson. He references Harlan's work specifically, even though he's never read them. But his dad, who was a police officer, was very into them. And he clearly knows about, like, what a detective, what this kind of gentleman sleuth is supposed to be like, just as he goes about this whole thing. And I really feel like, like we were talking about before, where everybody has a story where they are the protagonist. It just so happens that in this story, he kind of is the protagonist. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's the one that's kind of right. And, but, but he feels like he knows it in a lot of ways or you know just like everybody else is just as deluded by the story that he's creating and there are so many like little moments where he'll mention something or reference something that is clearly hearkening to a previous uh like detective piece i mean technically he's even the one there's a callback there's a verbal callback to the movie clue in this and he's the one that kicks it off which mm-hmm. i think is very funny uh, during the will scene, he says something about not not going anywhere, and somebody says, "Is that no? You mean this, or no? You mean this?" And they like brush it off, but it, the cadence of it is very specifically, "Is Got that it. no? It is, or no? It isn't?" Which is the which is a direct reference to Clue. Benoit Blanc, what makes him a little bit different from a lot of famous uh, mystery solvers with, I think, probably the exception of Jessica Fletcher, is that his dedication is not to truth, it's to justice. Mm. Sherlock Holmes, Columbo, all, a lot of these guys, they what they want to do is find out what is real and what is true. He's not interested. What he wants to do is find the most just answer to what is happening. It mm. uh, goes back to that line toward the beginning of the film, physical evidence can tell a clear story with a forked tongue. Mm. That element of who he is, I think, is is one of the things that separates him from the other characters in terms of, um, like you said, Victoria, they're, they're all the protagonist of their own stories. They're all seeing this from their own angle, and, uh, and Blanc is to an extent as well. But unlike them, he remains curious about what else is going on there. He is interested in other people's input into how things twist and turn and interact with each other, whereas everybody else is like, well, this is this is my line of how things go and they they sometimes will even miss things which are blatantly in front of them because they are not interested in anybody else's perspective i i love his line i'm here to observe the truth because that very much tells you everything you need to know about him he doesn't say i'm here to figure out the truth and arrest somebody he says i'm here to observe it meaning that I don't have a preconceived notion about what happened here. And I, I like that because everyone else has a preconceived notion about what went down. Mm. Um, another, we, 
not just there's nothing we have to spend a lot of time on but something that just popped into my head was about the subtlety of brilliance of Walt's character and I know he's he's kind of a more minor character in the grand scheme of things but Michael Shannon is always brilliant and always mm-hmm. plays off uh-huh. yes. really, really awfully yeah. but something about this that that um you know I don't know is apparent to everybody the subtlety that the movie never has to say about the fact that he walks with a cane they never tell us why or what happened to him to get that there as far as I can tell that alludes no. back to he was probably a sickly chronic illness child and that's why the dad gave him everything no the he was shot in the knee because he owes money yeah uh, or it could no, be that I'm, too he used to be an I'm, adventurer it's I'm one sorry. of the deleted scenes no actually uh, in one of the wide angle shots you can see that Walt has a boot on his foot mm-hmm. and he yep. broke it and that's why he's walking with a cane. Like it was, a, it was a recent accident of some sort. Okay, okay, sorry. There's a, there's a, a deleted scene um, that relates to uh, Walt and uh, his wife owing money uh, because they've invested <laughs> unwisely. And mm-hmm. uh, so I think he was on a bicycle and then reported that he had a bicycle accident. But it, no, when she took him to the hospital, yeah. she said he'd had a bicycle accident. Right. But when um, I. See. Uh, Blanc. Blanc looked at the hospital records he'd been shot in the leg mm. and I think he's wearing the boot to hide why he's actually hurt Yeah, I used to be an investor and then I took a bullet in the knee because it speaks oh, of a motive because they're desperate for cash yeah. but that whole uh-huh. plot line got um, yeah they had to snip it out which is a shame because uh, his wife the, uh, the actress is that was her like major bit Ricky Lindholm she does some fantastic physical acting where she goes from distraught and seeing Blanc as an ally to being suddenly wary and physically defensive in just some very subtle body movements. Yeah, she does nothing. She doesn't even get a name. Yeah, she, she gets told to eat shit. No, she pretty much just shows up to... to what, no, she she pretty much just shows up to, for that argument where she met, like, she's... I guess she's a stand-in for Sargon of Akkad in that argument they have about the politics and stuff, because she mentions how, oh, we're losing our culture. We just want to preserve yeah. our culture. Like, oh, it's God, white genocide. The that was, that it was is the, the worst. Is that the Ricky <laughs> no, do... character? Yes. yes. Okay, there's Donna. She, okay. Yeah. Donna. She does have a jump. Jesus, a, Donna. A, great jump earlier when when they cut from the the interviewing Walt she's my rock and then they cut and she's just completely strung out like totally uncomfortable being there it just jumps yeah. the juxtaposition for comic effect is absolutely fantastic we've got um uh, Jamie Lee Curtis saying I will absolutely tell you nothing and then cut to Don Johnson going what do you want to know <laughs> yeah, yeah. he's funny as fuck in this as well everyone's so funny but he's great Going back to Michael Shannon's character for a second, mm-hmm. uh, even like regardless of what the cause of his accident was or why he has a cane, it's a great way to introduce something that makes him menacing in a very subtle way. Mm. Because there is that one scene where he confronts Marta in the hallway that feels genuinely threatening and genuinely scary. And not just because it's, you know, the Iceman, you know, in the flesh right here, but it's just that the way they cut it together and it feels very claustrophobic and he just keeps, like, menacing on her and has these weird, like, very subtle threats of we're going to take your whole family down, we're going to get your mom and your sister deported. Mm. And It's just, oh, it's so... It's it's bone chilling. It's bone chilling. It's bone chilling. I like how every member of member of the family messes up where she's from as well. 
There are four different places where Marta is supposedly from, as these rotten caricatures assess that there are two countries in the world. There's America, and there's the place outside it, with a million names, that's apparently filled with people trying to get into America. Every single one of them wanted her at the funeral and were outvoted, too. I loved those lines. I love how Richard uh, Don Johnson says, uh, you know, of, of her immigrants, we get the job done. And then there's the pause, and then he goes, Hamilton. Trooper Wagner is like, oh, it's so good. It's a different gag now, but at the time, Hamilton was the province of white middle-class people who could afford to get to see Hamilton on Broadway. Yep. Or their equivalent yeah. of their yeah. country. So there's a certain bent irony that those of privilege got to see this story that is designed for people without money. And everybody without money is having to listen to it on Spotify or fucking YouTube. Now the people have it because of Disney Plus. Now things have been balanced. But at that point, that gag made me go, oh, God, they nailed Hamilton in one fell swoop. Yeah, they yeah. kind of did. <laughs> so this might be a really good time to jump in with another thing. I don't know if any of you read any of the critiques that are out there of this film from a couple of different perspectives. Mm-hmm. Um, no. But I I did the service of reading uh, two of them, one from an actual La- Latinx Im- like immigrant perspective okay. and one from the National Review, which is, oh, boy, no. don't read that one. <laughs> The the Nationalist Review? All all I'll say about the National Review critique is the very first sentence is, Ryan Johnson has made an annihilation fantasy for the woke white left. And I got to tell you, as I was reading through, I could only hear it in um, Alex Jones's voice. (laughs) Let me tell you something. um, PrisonPlanet.com. The center of conservative intellectualism. And arguably still is. Yeah, and, and, and it's a, I mean, that one's a good representation of kind of what we were talking about before of the politics being definitely taking aim at a lot of current politics, especially right, well, really centrist and right-leaning politics in America, mm-hmm. which obviously the person who wrote that was more like a Jacob rather than somebody mm-hmm. who at least thinks that they're more innocuous. But the more interesting one is actually this opinion piece by, uh, I'm going to call her out. She's Monica Castillo from mm-hmm. the New York Times. And she wrote from her perspective of watching this film being intensely uncomfortable by how trivial they treated the uh, Marta story. Because uh, the actor who plays Marta, she's um, Cuban. Cuban. <laughs> and it was this this continuing uh, like casting of Latinx experiences as homogenous and uh, watching people talk about putting people in cages and these conversations where in where we look at them and we think oh god that's like people i work with oh i hear this kind of thing on the internet for her it was anxiety inducing that if she was watching this and that there wasn't a like an actual comment on it thematically in the movie she found it just this emotional roller coaster where at the end she couldn't even like really connect with her friends who were talking about how like dynamic and how how good of like this murder mystery it was because she was so hung up on the mistreatment of Marta by the narrative and by the script and by the the actual filmmaking. I remember reading that article when she first published it because Monica is good people. She's actually originally from Boston, I think, because I met her at a premiere with with Bob. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was it was Devin because because I was riding a high of just loving this movie. And then I read that and I'm like, wow, it's just always good to get that that other perspective of like, you know, I, 
you know, it, it came off as almost like, you know, watching a minstrel show for somebody like they just look, they think they get it, but they don't. And, and they're just, and I'm like, wow, that's damn. <laughs> like almost like, yeah, it's, it's just wild. Um, I, I need to go back and read that again. Thank you for reminding me of that. Yeah, of course. And I think that it highlights just a really important thing that while uh, the characters in this movie are really showing their ignorance and their naivety and their entitlement on display as a comment to the expression of that in American culture. But Ryan Johnson, the director, is also a white dude and has his own biases and, and misconceptions, perhaps, that prevented him to a certain extent of kind of filling that donut hole as it were to um to to make it as appropriate as as it could be and i found the juxtaposition of a a critique from the you know a, a very i don't want to necessarily say like a leftist position but from the position of somebody who is disempowered you know racially socially in our country to somebody who is just this like right-leaning chud that uh, like has absolutely no perspective and just took offense at the base level uh, depictions. Um, but yeah, I just, I wanted to throw that in to, to put it out there because there are a bunch of different ways to read this movie. Uh, and I, I like that we can talk a lot about our perspectives, but I do at least want to put it out there that there is this other perspective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's important that we remember that for Marta, this is a very real thing. And when uh, even when Richard says, you know, hey, Marta, your your family did it the right way. You guys Oof. did it the way that you're supposed to. You came in here le-. like even that is super, super loaded, especially for mm-hmm. somebody who does have a parent who is is undocumented like that that hits super home for her but even if all of that were still true it would have huge implications and that's like that's pretty insulting for somebody coming from from that place and coming from you know as as an immigrant whose parent was probably an immigrant and they don't even i don't think they even make it clear if marta was born in the country or not, but regardless, that would still have a lot of weight for her, and that would still be a very painful reality for her, especially in this, you know, working for these types of people. Yeah, I, it always amazes me, having grown up with family members, especially in my, you know, the elder years, who could easily fall into the box of being someone like the people in this movie, or like the family in Get Out, where you just hear they don't really get it, but they think they're saying the right thing. Yeah. How they is want that supposed to get it, but they don't want to put in yeah. the work to do it. How is it supposed to make somebody feel when you look them in the eyes after saying something terrible? Like you could easily just say, well, I think of them less of people, or I think that they should leave the country. But what you really could be saying is I think we should gas them or kill them all and then go, yeah, but you're fine. Cause you did it the right way. It's literally like that one thing, not that I'm a human being, but that one thing is your basis for why I'm okay and why they're not. And you could easily be talking about my cousin or my best friend at that point. Yeah, it's like, or how Marta's is that own mother in this case. How is that supposed to be reassuring? Exactly. <laughs>
Does anybody have a, a favourite character and what details did you notice that tell us about the characters as the film plays out? Um, I, I quite like Linda, um, and part of that is that Jamie Lee Curtis is a phenomenal actress who plays a lot of, I mean, a lot of depth into everything that she does. Um, but in this case, it's one of those... Linda always feels resigned to what's going on. Um, she's not afraid to fight back, but she recognizes when the game is over. And that's not something that most of the other characters do. Mm-hmm. You know, they're still willing to fight at the end. She's just smoking her cigarette, looking up, and she knows she's beaten. She knows this game is over. And it's uh, the fact that they use Go in this as... Um, a, the specific game, the specific actual game that is being played, that is a game that, as you're playing it, there is a point where you recognize the game is over and you can continue to play. But most people, when they get very good at Go, they know at they know when it's time to quit. Okay, one of the things I really like about Linda as well is the um, the way she set up. She seems like she's losing the most but I think she's actually losing the least out of all of them because she has a business that she's built up on her own and while yes her father obviously gave or uh, I think it was a, her granddad wasn't it gave her um, a substantial amount of money to um, to found mm-hmm. it she does actually have something to fall back on that's in her name um, and that she doesn't have to share with Richard and the thing that she loses that's the most significant is uh, potentially her marriage but that's not mm. something that she's going to suffer greatly from losing, I think. Yeah, she doesn't seem to... <laughs> she doesn't seem to have that much warmth for Richard specifically, but but you're right. She does kind of have that. And she, I think, makes it a point at, at one time. I can't remember which character she says it to, but she says, no, that is my company. That is not our company. It's mine. And she might even say that to Richard at one point, but, uh, but she makes it very clear that that is something that is hers alone. She said that to Benoit Locke. Yeah, oh, okay. yes, okay. yeah, to the to the dete- the well, I think it was Lakeith Stanfield's character, but mm-hmm. yes, yeah, she says it yeah. to the detectives. And, well, and to be fair, she does also lose her son because Har- Ransom's going to jail. Oh, good point. Uh, yes. and, yeah. and it was Harlan that gave her the money because it's Ransom says it was his grandfather. His grand- sorry, sorry. Okay. So no, I ju- I'm just trying to to keep. You know, Twitter comments off of. I'm, just, I'm trying to <laughs> at the pass. If you've already commented on Twitter, you can just delete it now. It's fine. <laughs> it's been corrected. Okay. Anyone else? I, I kind of need to throw in on Linda too of the of the family because the the obvious answer to this question is Marta or Blanc. Yeah, yeah, like, like, yeah. yeah. I was trying not to go with the obvious. Like, Marta, Marta is the most like real person. And the only family member that I can find, like, an identifiable soul is Meg. Uh, and it's only kind of there. But Linda is played so well. Like you said, I was going to say the same thing, Sharon, that I think she kind of comes out of this the best out of everybody. She loses her marriage, but eh, she's kind of a girl boss. So uh, I can't believe I just used that word. Um, <laughs> but she she's still, like, in a good position, and she'll recover from it. And she even has, of all of them 
those couple of moments of tenderness that we mentioned before with the dogs calling them her puppies. Mm. And uh, when she's going over the previous letters from her father, yeah. as she's looking in that, that one box to kind of like show us that they're the, the invisible ink earlier in the film. Uh, she has like this moment of warmth as she's reading over them again, uh, that the other characters kind of don't get, they're all so high strung. They're all so just hateable. She's the only one that even seems to mourn Harlan at all. Mm-hmm. Like, the rest of them are so caught up in what their cut's going to be. How is the will going to be read out? What's their inheritance going to look like? And she seems to be the only one that actually, besides Marta, shed any real tears for him. They're mourning something they were never going to get. Yeah. Yeah. She's actually mourning. Yeah, she's actually mourning she's the loss mourning of relationship. Him. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I I'm a real lover of Harlan. He's um kind of the I, I'm particularly arrested by crotchety wise old gimmers and uh, he, Christopher Plummer is probably not going to be with us for much longer. And um, if nothing else, his standing in for Kevin Spacey duties uh, you know puts him above <laughs> most other crotchety old men. But the way that he talks with Marta uh, and the way that he instantly humanizes both of them and as does she. Uh, it it speaks of a man who is is ve- still used to his mind being agile, but he's counting the last few days. So when he finds out he's going to die very shortly, his reaction is both touching because he starts to immediately think about her, and also infuriating because he starts to take control and doesn't give her any say in in what she's going to do. In fact, you know, when she's effectively had he listened to her he would have lived but at the same time his actions are entirely altruistic and uh, he even seems to bear a soft spot for his rotten family um, obviously especially uh, Linda but he, he doesn't seem to hate them like you could easily and he pervades this whole movie that the, uh, the, 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 the portrait of him was actually put in at the very end. Every time they cut to that picture frame, it would have just been a green piece of paper in it that uh, the, the, uh, the actual portrait of him is, is put at the end. But the whole thing, because he's a mystery writer, he's also kind of a detective and he kind of on the spot sets up an impromptu mystery around the uh, the assassination of him if that makes well, that's, sense that's his real game it's mm. it's not go his real game is working out murder mysteries and this is his opportunity mm. to have one last goal yeah and i love the way he's also exemplified as, through another character we haven't really mentioned which is the house a a building absolutely festooned with knives cats lamps figures faces book spines and paintings yeah that house is very clearly a reference to the 1970s version of sleuth Mm. um there's a lot of those in there which uh, ryan johnson loves that movie and i can't blame him even though i kind of like the remake better um but yeah, it's that uh, the when Joni mentions the uh, case with the tennis pro that he solved, mm-hmm. that's a reference to Olivier's what he's dictating into his uh, his recorder at the beginning of Sleuth. Um, that opening shot where it's showing us all those things, including a prop from Sleuth. That's from mm-hmm. there. Like that that is largely where that inspiration is coming from, and it works so well in this film because it's not just a carbon copy. It is 
something that is made to reflect Harlan while also being sort of its own thing because it wasn't originally his. It mm. should be a scary and unnerving place with all of these the, these faces and eyeballs looking at you. When it cuts back to Harlan in his study arguing, there's these two giant blue eyeballs right behind his head. <laughs> like there's eyes and faces everywhere, like under different lighting with different music and a creeping camera. This would be terrifying, but it's so lively and it's so warm. That it's it's I a strange it, paradise. I think it mm-hmm. helps that a lot of times when they reveal those objects and the set dressing, if you will, it's cut to a very lively piece of music. Mm. Like it's it's set to the music, and that kind of helps take some of the creepiness and some of the scariness out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing I really love about Harlan is just that he just has such a flair for the dramatic, and the house is kind of a reflection of that too. It's mm-hmm. all drama, it's all theatrics, and another detail that I really like about Harlan, just to jump off of what you were saying, Alex, is his coffee mug that has mm. the saying, my house, my rules, my, my coffee. coffee. I thought that was just a great little <laughs> addition because that almost sets up everything else that happens in it. It's, it's my house, my rules, my coffee. So and then it gets passed yeah. on to Marta at the end. Mm. Yes, uh-huh. the first uh, major prop we see and then it comes like the, like the baseball to rest at the very end. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's, it's of- like perfectly capping off the beginning and end of the film. Mm. I thought that was great. Mm. Yeah. One thing it's worth bearing in mind about the house as well is if you, um, all of these sort of um, stuff that makes it feel so creepy or, or could potentially make it feel so creepy and what in very old houses has this accumulation of uh, eclectic taste from various different people and layers and layers of time this house does not have that Harlan bought this house in the, in the 1980s for a Pakistani real estate Ransom broker. was already born so <laughs> he was already a granddad he has bought this big mansion and then filled it with the contents of his imagination <laughs> this isn't stuff that's that's you know, been accumulating since the 1700s mm. It, I'm, I'm glad um, someone brought up Harlan because Harlan was going to be my pick. Um, and the, the reason I, I love Harlan so much, and I can't say this without paralleling back to um, the episode I did with um, Alex and Sharon on Big Fish, mm-hmm. is there's a there's a sentiment of a person that recognizes their faults in this character yeah. that they still end up being a character that, like, I, I take no qualm in saying anything negative about Harland after seeing how he behaves with Marta and basically saves her, mm. even though, like you said, he does some not so great things in dealing with that. Oh, if nothing else, cutting his throat in front of her insistently yeah. is one of the shittiest things you can do as yeah. a person. Yeah. Uh-huh. Like, you can yeah, just say, close horrible. the door on your way out, please. I don't want also you to see this. Cow, but he just straight though. up goes, punctuation. Yeah. yeah. Exclamation. The way that scene is the way that scene is filmed, it's close enough that it looks like Marta is going to kneel down at his feet and then the camera pulls mm. back, you find out that she did close the door behind her and she's sitting on the yeah. Uh, right. Stairs and stairs. Yeah, Did that step. tiny drop of blood on her shoe actually spray from all the way over there? Yes. Wow. Yes. Because it probably, the scene, yeah. yeah. Originally, the scene was going to have a lot more blood spray. They in painted it, the then, walls um, with. Uh, yeah, yeah, Johnson yeah. realized he wanted it to be a PG thirteen. Yeah. And the, the the parallel there that I that I really love with the with the big fish thing is it's again with big fish being one family member being affected by the father's whimsy mm. and 
how he is. We see in every single child, by the small amount of time we're given with Christopher Plummer in this movie, yeah. we see him reflected in all of them. Mm. And it's brilliant how they're able to do so much with so little with that. And the movie gives us, a, I wouldn't say a hero's end for him, but it has him trying to wrap up those mistakes of, you know, you can blame, I mean, Ransom can be fully blamed all the way back to him. Walt can be fully blamed all the way back to him. And he's recognizing that. And the only one that is even a tiny iota of successful in at the end, being selfless and fixing the mistakes he's made. Mm. Um, and that that's a really great thing to see in a character. And Plummer plays it so well where you can see him interacting with people and go, you know, he's kind of acting kind of vile right now, but still go, but he was trying it's that they think they're doing the right thing and here harlan takes it one step further by putting his money where his mouth is and going i've created awful people i'm not going to give them power anymore mm. and it's just like damn <laughs> like <laughs> and and he always gave them power like very clearly because he loved them and because he he was trying to see the best from them yeah Since we're talking about Harlan, can I geek out about something only I care about? Go for it. Sure. For sure. <laughs> the meds are right. Ketamine yeah. is totally a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medication that is non-habit forming that you would totally get for pulling your shoulder. 100 milligrams seems a little high, but for a given dose, if you only had one dose for the day, totally within reason. Yeah. The maximum dose is 120 milligrams, but uh, the, the morphine, 100%, totally like legit. I love it. Um, and the fact that like a major pivotal element is Marta's ability to tell the difference between them by just swirling them, hundred percent a thing that happens. Like I used to work in an yes. IV lab. I that adore is, that oh, detail. That nice. it, it's so true to real life. Uh, to to me, it just made me so happy because I geek out about that stuff. So did Ryan <laughs> Johnson mother. DM you to just double check those things <laughs> the way I've been doing? My mother is the kind of person that catches that stuff. She's always the person that'll, like, blow the end of a movie by catching a thing. So I love movies. I won't mention movies because we said we wouldn't blow them. Oh, thank but you. She's very good. She's very good at catching things early in a mystery, and then the movie goes and tries to redirect you away. But I remember in this one, her going at the end when they said that she goes yes she goes i was thinking that when i saw her hmm. how would she have messed it up because she would have known like i would have known and i and she's a home nurse and i'm like wow that's yeah. that's amazing and she did know i'm gonna divert our path for two minutes i am weirdly reminded of the estate of william w johnstone He's a pulp novelist who writes about flinty-eyed mountain men taming the American West. In 2018, he released Trigger Warning, which is basically Die Hard on a university campus. Trigger Warning was just one of 480 books that John Stone has graced the world with in his illustrious career. And it's especially impressive since he died 14 years before he wrote it, way back in 2004. In fact, a whopping... <laughs> 330 novels from that 480 have been released since William went the way of the mountain man, a rate of 20 a year. All the more curious since his exploration was not widely known about until recently. Jenny Nicholson obligingly read some highlights of 
trigger warning on her YouTube channel, but it seems like the Joni of the Johnstone family has been taking the checks for some time. That's all. Uh, Just wanted to run that I one by you. I remember seeing that video about, I was like, I didn't uh, recognize the name immediately until you said trigger warning. He's like, oh, it's oh, that, that guy. guy. Yeah. I remember yeah. hearing about this. It's like, From, it's insane. It's, uh, uh, Johnstone has had a ghostwriter for a long time, and that ghostwriter turns out to be his daughter or granddaughter? I think it's granddaughter. I think it's, it's, I think it's his granddaughter, yeah. So, or something like that. I've got a, a weird feeling like Ryan Johnson heard that and thought, that's not a movie, but elements of that seem to have crept into Knives Out. This whole mm. publishing books under an assumed name of, of someone, to, you know, to, to, to sell to his fans and not telling them he's dead is shady enough to be worthy of a story well, in itself. Well, I was going to say that the practice of continuing to produce um, work under somebody's name after they've passed on is not exactly... Um, yeah. Christopher Tolkien thing. took a long time to collate those notes. Oh, yeah. yeah and uh, yeah. Virginia uh-huh. Andrews' books, I think we're now at the point where the majority mm. of them were released after she died, but they've never made any mm. any um, bones about that fact. It's always been, this is the estate Up of Virginia front, Andrews. yeah. We are writing in the spirit mm. of her However, story. yeah, in this was cases, like... In some cases, copying entire paragraphs. This was like a, a death that wasn't widely reported, and uh, they sort of like didn't mention it on the. Uh, they kept him in the basement for yeah. a fortnight. The GeoCities website was not updated. The GeoCities. Wow. <laughs> yep. But uh, but I'll say that number again because this is a little baffling. Three hundred and thirty novels. Mm. Good. God. I am not writing 330 novels for you after you've gone. Oh, please. <laughs> <laughs> please don't put that on Lyra either. Jeez. Yeah. Political correctness won't save you. That's just all in caps. It's not really part of the summary. It's like former army ranger Jake Rivers is not your typical Kelton college student. He is not spoiled, coddled, or ultra lib like his classmates who sneer at the soldier boy. Rivers is not triggered by microaggressions. He is not outraged by male privilege and cisgender bathrooms. He does not need a safe space or coloring books. Jake needs an education. And there is a typo in the summary. Jake's is plural, and when terror strikes, the school needs Jake. Without warning, the sounds of gunfire plunge the campus into a battle zone. A violent gang of marauders invade the main hall, taking students as hostages for big ransom money. As a veteran and patriot, Jake won't give in to their demands. But to fight back, he needs to enlist his fellow classmates to school these special snowflakes in the not-so-liberal art of war. This time, the aggressive isn't micro it's life or death and only the strong survive and next to the barcode it says live free read hard i'm cautiously stoked for this one that, uh, if we that being if, said i was already shocked at the idea that he was uh, presenting two novels a year mm, tw- oh, 20 a, 20 a year do you mean no, no, i bet no, I meant uh, Harlan Trump. Oh, yeah, Sorry, Harlan, yeah. Going back yeah, a little yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, going back to, <laughs> back to was the guy who actually sounds wow. more real than the real guy. Yeah. Yeah, 20 novels a year is even more than Chuck Tingle does. And mm. he cranks them <laughs> <up>. <laughs> yeah. That was the wrong phrase for that, isn't it? Cranks them <laughs> <up>. <laughs> Or the right phrase. Yeah, I was just thinking that. <laughs> 
we were talking about little subtle no- notes in the characters that we oh. may or may not be misinterpreting and uh, what makes them good characters. So go. Oh, I have one for Marta, actually. This was a tiny little thing. And actually, it was it was Lyra who made me think about it. Um, but she mentioned that the fact that, uh, that Marta never changes her shoes. She's still wearing the same shoes at the end um, as mm. she is when uh, Harlan kills himself and hence why... Um, so she's always got that blood spot Blanc on is it. able to pick up on the blood spot, yeah. Um, and uh, Lyra interpreted that as um, she's poor and can only afford one pair of shoes Mm. Um, however if you look at what's going on in her house they do have quite a lot of um, electronic devices and things like that there's a laptop and decent TV I think what's more likely is that she is the kind of person who spends her money on her family and not on herself Mm. Um, and also if she's a nurse chances are that she's found a pair of shoes that is comfortable, mm. that she can walk around in a lot um, and warm them in, and that's the shoes that she always wears. This is corroborated by two other factors that she doesn't tend to spend money on things she doesn't need to. Uh, a lot. I, I'm, I'm used to being poor and making things last and last and last. She's missing a hubcap on her car, and I didn't see it ever flip off during the worst, the dumbest uh, car chase of all time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's not just a hubcap. That's oh, yeah? actually a donut. That's, oh. a, that's a that's a donut yep. that was clearly yeah, placed. Yeah, she's got a, a spare tire that she just hasn't bothered to change because she probably can't afford a brand new tire to replace it with. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah. And it's the other thing is that her phone is smashed from the very beginning yeah. and wasn't to do with anything to do with mm-hmm. the murder, and she hasn't had it replaced immediately like any person who had money to spend on new phones would be able yeah. to. Yeah, indeed. Or, yeah, or insurance or something like yeah. that to replace it. She's just gone, I'll last with this thing. It's just got a broken screen. I can still make calls in it. Yeah. Also, uh, Marta wears trousers which are loose and comfortable but slightly too short for her, mm. which again suggests either she's keeping them longer than she needs to or it's just the fact that if you wear slightly cropped trousers, you're less likely to trip over them, which if you're running up and downstairs looking after somebody would be a consideration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's kind of what I thought was that it was a practical thing. She didn't want to be stepping on her hems all the time. Indeed. Yeah. I was going to say, I'm, Victoria, I was yeah. to say, Alex, I really am I'm glad you pointed that out because it reminded me a lot of somebody who at least grew up poor. Like they might not be doing poorly now, but the idea that like when you grow up and you don't have a lot of money, you do, like you said, you try to make everything last. Mm. And even those laptops and the TV and stuff, I bet they're not new. Mm. I bet they're probably you know they're they're probably on the the end of their kind of like usefulness like if we if we actually looked up the models and like what versions that they would have been at the time it does seem very unlikely that she would spend more on them than she needed to right Uh i i can attest to that as someone who is you know doing fine now but grew up quite poor and Mm. yeah you you make do with what you got Yep. Also, that, that uh, says something about Harlan uh, in that she can afford to buy a decent TV, which means he wasn't underpaying her. One thing that I think we can uh, take from Harlan is um, that his kids are all named after um, 70s rock stars. <laughs> or 70s pop stars at the very least. Mm-hmm. Walt and Donna, I, I, they somehow married into this too. <laughs> <laughs> I inherited uh, 70s pop star DNA. Yeah. Well, uh, Walt and Donna are a reference to uh, Walter Becker and Donald Fagan from Steely Dan. Mm-hmm. And uh, Joni is obviously Joni Mitchell, particularly with the eye. Mm-hmm. Uh, her husband, Neil, is Neil Young there. And then Linda and Richard are Linda and Richard Thompson. 
Ransom, however, is named after uh, C.S. Lewis's Planetary Trilogy. It's a sci-fi uh, series, and, and the lead character is called Ransom. So I think he was yep. probably trying to give him uh, a, a name that people would think, oh, this guy might be a decent lead hero character that's sort of late to the party. And he's played by yeah. this handsome young fellow with sea green eyes you could lose yourself in. Uh-huh. <laughs> Go on, Alex, go on. Yes. <laughs> Can I talk about Great Nana for a second? Yes. 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 I, okay. So she's, it's so funny because she plays such a small part in the in the whole movie, but she's so wonderful. I, I cannot recall the actress's name right off the top of my head, but I think Great Nana is, is absolutely wonderful. She plays such a vital role in the film, even though she's set up to almost be almost like one of the props in the house. Like yeah, she's she just looks kind of, a, kind of like those weird statues. Yeah, she's just kind of a fixture that's sort of always there. And she doesn't say a whole lot, and she doesn't seem to be wholly cognizant of everything going around her. Mm. But she is... Uh, uh, Blanc even mentions that he's like, I think you might be a very observant person, and you like there might be going more going on there than we thought. And he's absolutely right. Key pieces of information... Ransom, you came back, and Ransom, are you back again? She notices every single time that Ransom yeah. leaves the house and comes back to the house, mm-hmm. even when he, it's not actually him and she just mistakes a person for being him. She knows when he has been there and when he has left, and that becomes like basically the missing piece of the puzzle that Blanc has to piece everything together with. Uh, the actress is Kay Callan. And again, it's one of those, they could have gotten away with it if it weren't for this guy with empathy who actually recognizes that this is a human being, not just somebody to somebody to walk past and occasionally yell at some to see if she's hungry. Mm. Oh my God. Yeah, that scene that, God, it, that made me so uncomfortable because I've seen you know, family members do that to elderly family members, and it is just the most uncomfortable, like, uh, skin-crawling thing you can see is to have a family member shouting at another elderly family member where, like, they clearly just want to be left alone and they don't need anything and they're fine. It's like, just just leave them alone. They're not deaf. It doesn't matter how loudly you shout at them. Yeah. They can hear you if still, they are- and they're still fine. If they are deaf, shouting at them is also not going to be. It's also effective. not going to make a difference. Yeah, I but love the juxtaposition actually... of uh, of how Blanc speaks to her, uh, yes. in, in just with that respect and that the measured, cool, with, calm, and with dignity. And like, mm. this is another pair of eyes and ears who has seen and heard something, and I know that they're a crucial part of this family. So. And is prepared. He's prepared to take things at her pace, and he's like, "I will sit with you. I quite enjoy it." Mm. And you know, they're mm-hmm. listening to La Traviata at the time. It's yeah. uh, it. It's it's peaceful and calming, which is uh, it's very pleasant for a detective who you know they usually they're they're rushing through with like you know people shooting guns at them all the time. He he actually ends up imperiled very little in this film. Mm. Yeah, I, one of the things I love most about her is the um, the smirk and the snigger when they all get shafted over the wheel. Mm. Yeah, I think she's got like as if she saw it coming. Yeah, she's got a ticket to stay in the house, hasn't she? So like, like she'll she'll remain there. I I I can't see Marta throwing her out. To be honest, oh no, I I can't. I suspect that some of her, you know, like 
acting like she's enfeebled, I bet that's a, maybe not all of it, but a lot of that is an act. Hmm. Clearly, she's like, he's like, fine, you're going, I will play the role you think I'm, you know, infirm and ready to die. Fine. That's that's who I'll play for you. Mm. Like means you'll leave me alone. <laughs> yeah, or she's doing it on purpose so that they'll leave her alone. Like or, I just don't want to have anything to do with you people. Or that, yes. Another little character beat for Fran, an underused, uh, or an undermentioned character because we've got so many in this cast. Uh, she's the uh, the maid who ends up being killed by uh, Ransom. She overshares at the party. She's talking about hairy ex-boyfriends. Tends to overshare about everything apart from the fact that she had this information where she unwisely tried to blackmail him. And I did feel bad for her character because oh, it yeah. seems like she was in over her head. Mm. She's seems like a pretty decent person and and she gets in some ways maybe not the worst treatment but some of the worst treatment in the movie well she ends up dead in the way most of the rest of them don't yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'd say that's pretty bad treatment but she is also the arbiter of the in every really great mystery there'll be one bit that makes me go oh and for for me in this one it was the hue did this yes yeah Mm-hmm. Which I was racking, like I was going back and forth through it, going, "Is that cheating?" Because they very deliberately used two different takes, and uh, were, Ryan Johnson spent a long time very carefully playing with the soundscape to allow us to hear and not hear just the right things to uh, allow us to get, you know, be given certain bits of information. And it does feel like had we, she delivered the exact same line twice. That that we would be able to go. We were told that piece of information, but they do ever so slightly dampen the <laughs> sound in the hue the first time around. Yeah, and it's not yeah. a memory; it's actually happening at the time, so it's not coloured by Marta's uh, view on it. Having said that, they cheat so little in this incredibly densely packed mystery that I'll allow it. Yeah, it's yeah. totally fine. Yeah, <laughs> the after for the elephant. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love and that. It, it is perfectly summed up by he makes the help call him Hugh. Mm. And that's the only time we hear him called Hugh. It, it's a very perfect playoff on that. Because he's an mm-hmm. asshole. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The bit that Karu mentioned was the, the, yeah, Marta trying to remember what Harlan had said. Do I pull in before the elephant or after? <laughs> and, and, like, and I'm like, I, I was in that moment because I've been there. I'm like, wait, what did that person say to me? Crap. Yeah. And we that get- being said, it would make more sense to be after the elephant just because you're going away from the house. Hmm. Like, we have this one stretch of road just before the gate where you can't see a damn thing. But that being said, she was a little, she was a little distracted, so I can understand that. We also get M. Emmett Walsh at this point, who was standing in for poor Ricky Jay, who died before he could be in the film in the uh, role of the uh, the Watchman with the video cassettes. And uh, yeah. they they had, Ryan made sure there was a photo of Ricky Jay in the office, just in a kind of little memoriam for him, which is a, I mean, the level of detail that this guy deals with is astonishing. Sure was a shame about that videotape. And the, uh, yeah. The, yeah. But All that's, that modern technology. <laughs> that's also around about the time that Marta is actually doing proactive and intuitive things to make sure she doesn't get caught. And she's we've been given a reason to invest in her. And 
she we never think you're dumb for believing this to be the truth uh you know especially when it with regards to ransom because we want to believe him as well and he's got pretty much everything sewn up tightly although did you notice that he's <laughs> this is in the commentary i wouldn't have heard it otherwise i wouldn't have caught it otherwise he's missing a jug in his shelf display in his house because he used that jug to smash the window when he set fire to that building Ah, oh, nice. Yeah, some of the details in this, I am just floored by the attention to detail on so much of it. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely a movie that I think we could watch a hundred more times mm. and pull out at least twice that many new little tiny things that, like, oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Another uh, reference that I quite liked was uh, the M.M. at Walsh scene where he's in the security room. Mm. Uh, Those monitors and that monitor setup is a lot like a particular episode of Murder, She Wrote, in which a monitor setup like that was instrumental in the plot. Mm. Murder, She Wrote, which is on the TV when Marta gets home. Nice. Yeah, I was about to say, they have some some archival footage uh, showing on the TV. She's probably watching... Uh, in syndication or something, uh, but yeah, they do have a, a little nod in to Spanish. She wrote down there mm-hmm. in Spanish. Yeah, yeah. it's remarkably love... reverent to the uh, the stockpile of um, uh, influences. Mm. And so. um, yeah. the comment about Harlan writing his uh, certainly his early mysteries on a manual typewriter, mm. which obviously Jessica Fletcher oh. had her. Mm. Mm. Yep, Smith Corona. Indeed. And this is yeah, this is. Well, a, like light years ahead of uh, his first mystery brick, which was uh, it was a good um, like sort of startup uh, prototype for a, a mystery, but um, it, uh, this comes out at you with a confidence and an understanding of more than being just a mystery. This wants to be just a really fantastic, splendid movie to get you to come back again once you know. The end. Once you've once you've seen who the murderer is, it has more to it than simply utility. Yeah, there's a lot of mystery movies and shows and whatnot that I'll watch and I'll enjoy, but I don't revisit them. Mm. Yeah, you, know, you don't you don't feel the need to go back and see all the little details that you might have missed the first time around. This, like you said, you could probably go back and just notice like little differences every single time pick out different stuff in the background and the set pieces and the costumes like yeah you could really go uh, deep on the on the symbolism and and little references that they placed in the in just in like the little nooks and crannies of the film yeah I was just saying, since we're talking about the details and stuff, can I throw in some things about the cinematography that I noticed? Please. I Please. So in the beginning, in the quote-unquote introductory act, any time that they are showing on screen something that is a lie that the family is telling the policemen, it is shot with a very warm filter, a very warm lens, especially like when they're bringing down the cake and it's like kind of warm and fuzzy Mm. because it's this lie that they're perpetuating. But when we get to see the truth of what happens, it's a much more stark, much more cool uh, shot, much more cool filter that they're using to like kind of show the coldness because it's not a lie. It's the real thing that happened. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
The second act is my particular favorite because it starts with the will reading. Everybody's kind of thrown out. There's all this chaos. And Marta goes to leave. She walks out onto the porch, down off the steps, and we have a steady zoom in on her. But we hear the sounds of the family coming out. And it is in that moment that they move from a steady cam to a handheld mm. and mm. with one fluid shot. And as the family come out and accost her, the, the camera work itself in that pretty long take becomes a lot more jittery and a lot less focus and a lot more anxiety inducing mm. in this beautiful stretch mm. of, of filming. Watch it the next time you, you yeah. see it. I actually it, noticed that this last time that I watched it, I thought that was really cool. Like, ah, oh, they just moved to a, a shaky cam and it's going all over the place as she's getting bombarded by the other family members. And they pull out mm-hmm. the specificity from the sound mix of what's being said and those violins just come in and start going, just to just to jangle home. It doesn't matter what they're saying. They're shouting in her face as this one cacophony. Mm-hmm. And then it was uh, mentioned before, but also in the second act shortly after this, when Walt confronts her in the hallway, there's these quick cuts of his cane coming down as he's becoming very menacing. And the, the quick cuts, the, the very tight hallway is also highlighting again, Marta feeling trapped her feeling like very out of place and it kind of increases the tension for the viewer just as it's increasing or showing the tension of the main character on the screen uh then to jump to the the end slash the third act one of the things i think is really well i guess this happens in the beginning too is the placement of swords there's very specifically like there's three places where swords are very specific. The the one is, I love the fact that the dagger that Harlan uses to kill himself is also the one in the portrait. Yes. But it's at, uh-huh. at the very beginning when we show up at the house, when Marta enters the house for the first time, Linda is the first person to greet her at the door. And we have a low angled shot that shows a series of swords hanging apparently above Linda. Damn and and a, yeah, sort of Damocles is what I was thinking of whenever I was watching it. And then Richard comes in as well. But Marta is never pictured under those. It's only the members of the family because then it cuts and it shows them going in. And then you have, of course, the big circle of knives where uh, it, the big donut of knives, shall we say. Yeah. <laughs> and the, uh, the only person in the film who has a straight on shot that they are sitting where their head is in the center of that is Blanc. Because he's the one who's at the center of the donut, quote unquote, of the whole mystery for himself, like we said before. And I was very specific watching it this time because Marta sits in that chair, but they never have a straight on shot of her with all the knives surrounding her head. Mm-hmm. In that scene and none of the scenes before that, because that chair starts out way to the right of that circle and moves closer to it as different people are being interviewed to the point where it's very close when Marta's being interviewed at the beginning, but not quite in the center of it. There's a measure of satisfaction when uh, uh, Craig's head takes up that space. He even like slightly tilts and moves away from it and then back in. It reminds me of DVD screensavers when the little square that changes color slowly crawls down to the bottom corner of the monitor but doesn't quite fit in the middle. But then when it does, like when it does snugly go into the corner for a half second, you go, yes, like in the office. Um, and he's effectively plugging the donut hole. He is filling that space. Yeah. The knife theme as well. There are several occasions throughout the film where you see a knife on screen and they generally put something in the music or there's something in the sound effects that, that 
tends to happen when people handle knives in movies where it sounds like it's cutting something, um, making that schnick noise, even if it's not doing anything that would cause it to make that noise. But it almost seems in this, because, and and this time watching it through, I picked up on uh, Harlan's line about until you can't tell the difference between a real knife and a stage prop, Mm. which obviously loops back around to the end. Um, But it almost feels like that constant, here is a knife, I'm putting it under your nose so that you can look at it you see this is what a real knife looks like this is how you know this is what it does and then at the end he obviously pulls out the The one (laughs) in that whole thing that is going to be completely useless to it and you're reminded of how many of them are absolutely deadly in the final shot as it pans up from Marta and she's basically looking at all of these hanging blades above her mm. having like again she's being proactive she she he, Ryan decided that she had to do something you know like effectively using subterfuge even if it would be using well if her vomiting when she tells any measure of untruth, even when she just tells fragments of the truth in a way that will withhold them. Remember, she she goes running straight to the toilet. But that's almost Mm -hmm. a superpower to connect to us, the audience, because within a mystery, we are relieved to meet a character who is so virtuous that we know they can't lie to us. If you are a fan of cinematography, watch this movie from start to finish. Take note of all the cuts. Take note of long shots and focus racking and everything. It's masterful. Like, I I could see Mm. using this in a class. And then watch The Last Jedi, the best shot Star Wars film. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. The best Star Wars film. I mean, this just... (gasps) Okay. (laughs) Just one... Sixteen times out. I don't mean to throw that hot take out there and get written about me on the the national, the daily, whatever the hell I read earlier. Here come the Twitter trolls right back again. Um, (laughs) One one tiny little thing as well, and I don't even for a moment suspect that this is intentional. It only just popped into my head, Alex, when you said about um, Marta lying down, having all those um, hanging blades suspended over her. Mm -hmm. Um, But apparently there is a concept in um, a branch of Chinese medicine which is referred to as hanging blade um and it relates specifically to a conflicted relationship with the father Hmm. Ah. (laughs) okay uh here's here's a little bit uh, jumping off the cinematography thing Mm -hmm. so ryan johnson originally had planned for much quicker cuts during the parlor scene um at the end Mm -hmm. but Daniel Craig had memorized the last 30 pages of script, which were largely monologues from him. Mm -hmm. Mm. And the more he did them, the longer the take went, the more into it he got, and the better it got. So he just kept lengthening these shots and lengthening and lengthening (laughs) until the point that it was basically just a few very long shots of Daniel Craig getting more and more into this speech. Just because he's such a professional, he just is that good. It yeah. does feel very um, stage play, though. It does have that stage yeah. play energy, that idea that even if you could see uh, the whole room and how everybody was was interacting with each other, it it kind of when they when they talk about what was going on behind the scenes and all the the backstage stuff, it feels like everyone was so into it that they would have been able to get up and perform it on stage and still been able to keep that character momentum going even if they were um, having yeah. to interact with each other all the time. I can give you a 99% guarantee that when theatre returns, if it indeed does return, Knives Out will make a theatrical appearance. 
and oh, yes. clean up. That would make sense. And by theatre, I mean Broadway and the London stage. And people yeah, who, yeah. Uh, much like the uh, uh, characters in Knives Out, will be able to afford to go and see it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Because we saw this in the theaters. This we were just discussing last night. This is one of the last movies we saw in the theaters. A little bit, a little uh, bit of a lucky, of a sad note there. He, what he said when we were walking out of the theater, and he was like, "You know, you see actors often chew the scenery, but I very rarely seen a movie where the scenery chews back." <laughs> <laughs> nice. Mm-hmm. I do love the way that uh, Joni and Linda are characterized very briefly in juxtaposition at the beginning during the uh, uh, in- uh, introduction and uh, uh, interviews when uh, Blanc is sitting in the background and Joni says, I read a tweet about a New Yorker article about you. Yeah. And then Linda follows that up with, I read a New Yorker article about yeah, you. Just to illustrate that one's done article. her reading and the other one's just read a tweet. Yeah. Yeah, and so did Ransom because it was open on his desk. Mm. Yes. Nice. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, honestly, Tony Collette, it's a kind of a thankless task because she plays one of the most oblivious characters. Uh, but apparently uh, her goop that she's uh, selling online, if you watch the, um, uh, if you look through the Blu-ray, there are some viral ads for their various companies that they're trying to make work. Linda was selling real estate. Walt was trying to sell Blood Like Wine as a brand, including branded cutlery where you can only buy the knives with br- uh, Blood Like Wine written on oh. them. And um, ah. Joni is selling her facial stuff and, and candles and things that smell like things through her startup business Flam, which derives from the slang flim flam, meaning a confidence trickster or swindler, including moisturizer made of snail jelly. That's actually a thing where, like, I I don't know. I this is a very I think it's a very like Chinese skincare regimen kind of thing. Not that I'm trying to throw any kind of shade on their methods or anything like that. That's not what this is. But it happens to be a specific thing to like. Chinese skincare and medicine where they actually will take snail slime and make like facial masks and moisturizer out of it. I feel so snaily. So that actually is a real thing. I'm not, yeah. Make or slowening. Well, and clearly, like, obviously what's being riffed on here is the, is the cultural appropriation, not the, not the original, you know, the, the, the cultures where those things were considered legitimate or used as medicine or whatever, but it's, you know, oblivious, rich white people. Yeah. Make a cheap, make a cheap formula that you can package and sell. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, another little uh, thing that's actually uh, less in-world and more metatextual. Benoit Blanc's accent stems from uh, the character Christopher Guest played in Best in Show. And Ryan used to mumble the following routine at Daniel Craig while he was trying to prepare for being Benoit Blanc. I used to be able to name every nut that there was. And that used to drive my mother crazy because she used to say, Harlan Pepper, if you don't stop naming nuts... And the joke was, of course, that we lived in Pine Nut. And I think that's what put it in my head at that, at that point. So I'd go to sleep. She'd hear me in the other room, and she would just start yelling. I'd say, Peanut. Hazelnut. Cashew nut. Macadamia nut. That was the one that was sent her <laughs> into a, going crazy. She said, you stop naming nuts. 
coincidentally or not, Christopher Guest, married to Jamie Lee Curtis. But I'm going to go ahead and guess that since his name was Harlan Pepper, that since Blanc says Harlan's name more than any other character in the film, Harlan Thrombe got his name from Harlan Pepper in Best in Show. Nice. Just oh, supposition on my sense. part. Oh, that, and that does one... make a lot. And this is, I think, Daniel Craig's best American accent. He's also fantastic in that Steven Soderbergh NASCAR heist, Logan Lucky. We just happened to rewatch the uh, the to- Laura Croft Tomb Raider movie that Daniel Craig was in back in like 2001. Uh, which, side note, I adore that movie, and I just you know my love was utterly rekindled when we watched it a few days ago. <laughs> but Daniel Craig doing an American accent there is abysmal. Oh, it's terrible! I saw that recently yeah. as well. Yeah, it's it. If he's not if he's not going over the top with the accent, if it's sort of a very neutral accent, mm. then he can't do it. But you give him something to chew on, mm. and it sounds like he is chewing literally on something this entire time. <laughs> All yes. of these tones are so round and so full. <laughs> And it's everything he says seems to fill his mouth before it comes tumbling out. One other tiny bit that uh, uh, Lyra noticed when uh, Ransom hands Marta uh, the bowl when they're in the uh, gastronomic pub. uh, uh, He basically says, you've now got to tell me what happened to my father. And because he's tricked her, she must now literally spill the beans or spill the beans. Gross. I wanted. There were a couple of things that I wanted to just like little references that I picked up on that mm-hmm. I thought were cute. So apparently, Joseph Gordon-Levitt makes a small cameo in this film somewhere. It's probably at the end, but he's credited as playing one of the detectives or one of the police yeah, officers. It's early he's on. The voice. He's yeah, the so. voice at the beginning yeah. that um, Marta's sister's listening to the thing. Mm-hmm. He's detective, what was it, Hardway? Or? Oh, something like that. Fresh out of Gotham City. Yeah, it's yeah. something like that, but he does make a small appearance, and of course he was in Looper, which, you know, one of uh, Ryan Johnson's early films, which mm-hmm. I still think is quite good. five Ryan Johnson and, films. Oh yeah, he was right. in Brick as well, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, that's right, he was also in Brick. Um, also, one of the things that just makes me laugh every single time I hear it, there's a point where Lakeith Stanfield says get out and I, nice. just, I die laughing every single time <laughs> yes <laughs> it's a perfect place to say it because you were talking about marta and her sister and mom at the beginning there mm-hmm. i loved the bit where her sister's listening to the murder mystery and they're having that back and forth if you shouldn't be listening to something like that mm. you know um it'll make marta upset and marta says no you can keep listening to it and the camera cuts to looking right at marta and the sister says, I already know who did it anyway. Nice. And I, I <laughs> love that. <laughs> also, the tiny little character beat there of the fact that very clearly the thing that is making Marta upset is is how insistent her mother's being about this. And, and Marta's just like, just leave me alone. Listen to, watch whatever you want. I don't care. This is, hmm. that's, I know that's fiction. Like, leave me alone. According to Johnson, it's foreshadowing for uh, uh, Marta being in Harlan's place in 30 years or so. As in having to have having to deal with an extended family all after her money. Ah, uh, yeah. 
again, I, I love how uh, he decides to do this because he has worked out that everyone's after money and they believe that that will answer all of their problems and that, that their troubles will be over if they could just get that money. And he has decided, as the person who has the money, that it's not going to solve all of their problems, that their problems ultimately all lie within. And so that thing about this could be the best thing that ever happened to you gets said and then reprised, uh, you know, wryly and sardonically both times, actually does come off almost like a truism in that it better be the best thing that happened to you because you're not getting the money on this one. Yeah. Kind of has a weird inverse or parallel to Willy Wonka mm. and Charlie Chocolate oh, Factory. Yeah. Like getting to see all these people that are selfish have the have the thing they've always wanted taken from them. Mm. And you've got this girl that like and like you just hit on with there that she'll be in Harlan's place. He's handing it on to someone that he knows understands the value of it mm. and knows that she'll make a similar selfless selfless decision like him. Or at least she's the most capable of making that decision and everyone has the potential to give it to i love the character beat we've already mentioned her several times but the bit at the end where uh uh, jamie lee curtis just sort of leans against a pillar Uh, first off when she finds the um piece of paper that don johnson's uh her husband just tossed to one side and incriminated himself with it she smiles because she knows oh this is the lemon juice thing and so she leans against the thing and it's almost she savors it like she knows her son's being taken to jail and so she's like well i guess this is the last thing my father will have ever written me and then she sort of uses the lighter with it with an air of casuality like she's done it many times before and relishes seeing it and then her face with that just the cigarette hanging at an angle as she looks up at him and they added in post in the next shot when you're sort of panning back away from them and they're looking up at marta uh, a black eye to um Richard's face because clearly they had a bit of a tete-a-tete immediately after that nice I rather suspect again like you said like Linda knew the game was up Mm. and I again she's not a great person Mm. but I have a feeling that eventually she may become a little bit of an ally for Marta and a little bit of a like because again she did she did love her dad and I think and you also see she's one of the only people like Marta asks her how she's doing mm. so I think there there may have been a little bit more of a rapport there and obviously Linda's still not a great person but I I feel like there's room Linda for has yes yeah yes I agree and I think she I think Linda eventually does recognize that her dad may have been acting with wis- with wisdom here. I'm going to call this next bit a power of three moment. I'm sure that there's more than three in it. But um, when Meg's talking to... This is just to finish this one off. When Meg's talking to uh, Marta on the phone and she talks about, you know, I think you should do what you think is right, dot, dot, dot. I think you should give the money to us. And uh, Marta... Um, goes, you know, she then says wheedlingly, we'll take care of you. And then Marta, by the end of the conversation, doesn't get shitty about it, but she says, you know, I will make sure that I take care of you in a kind of, no, 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 no. He gave it to me. And like, she doesn't, she is mousy throughout the film, but then there are times when she just sort of 
sets her heels and sets her jaw and just goes, no, this is, I'm going to do this one. The second time is when Michael Shannon uh, corners her in the corridor and becomes really threatening and, you know, says, well, we can get our, our top legal people. And she says, well, your lawyers just became my lawyers, so I guess I'll be able to do this as well. And she doesn't do it in a particularly um, audacious way. She's just in a kind of, like, this works in my head, now I'm going to get out of here because he genuinely is threatening. Which then, of course, the third one being my house, my rules, my coffee, at the end, which is the best shot. And that is all foreshadowed by her game of go with Harlan Mm. at the very beginning. She won't let him win. But she says she's not playing to win. She's she just wants to, to make a, a beautiful, beautiful pattern, pattern. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. which endears yeah. us to her. Yeah, and she doesn't. She does not play the game that the rest of the family is. They're scheming and conniving and trying to win. Mm. She wins by, in a very war game sort of way, not playing. The only winning move is she, not to play. She plays by making her own rules. She refused to play by Harlan's rules. Mm. Uh-huh. Oh, and. There's also very definitely, she says multiple times, she, this is what Harlan wanted. Because, again, she's, she cares more than any of the rest of them what he wanted. And she's like, this is what he wanted for me. Again, she's a very selfless person. But when she needs to, she has a spine of steel. Uh-huh. School of Movies is funded by Patreon, and we thank our top-tier $15 patrons every week. So thank you to... Joel Robinson, Finbar Nicole, Abel Savard, Michael Haskell, Trey Contreras, Matthew Webb, Angus Lee, Kevin Vey, Daniel Salguero, Connor Kennedy, Johan Clayson, Joe Gesiga, Tim Rosensky, Christopher Wolfe, Matthew A. Siebert, Kat Esman, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Toby Jungius, David Hickman, Tom Painter, Dan Hepner, Marty Huey, Mark Luch, Brian Novak, Frankie Punzi, Aaron Lecluse, Lorraine Chisholm, Timothy Green, Cassandra Newman, Duran Barnett, Benjamin, Joseph Gluck, Greg Downing, Kieran Dashler, Dan Mayer, Jameis Enright, Nick Ord, David Sheely, Chris Finnick, and Joe Crow. Shut up! <laughs> Shut up with that Kentucky Fried Foghorn Leghorn draw! One final note left hanging. Frank Oz is just fantastic and kind of becomes de facto den mother of this rabble until Richard says, you're useless. To which he can only reply, thank you, because he has been reprieved and he leaves this bunch of children to their own devices. I think that will about do it for Knives Out. Before we leave, where can people find your favorite recent work? Let's start with Chris. Hey, everybody. Um, And again, thank you guys so much, as always, for having me on. Um, I'm Chris. Um, I make podcasts and other things under the umbrella of The Chippa Made This. You can search that on Google um, or find me on Twitter at at The Chippa. I do four podcasts, um, video series. There's more coming. And I guest on shows like this. So thank you guys so much for uh, being um, 
fans enough to have me on. And thank you all listening for coming and finding me. Patreon.com slash the chip up. Okay, uh, Caro and Debbie next. All right, um, you can find, if you go to sequentially-yours.com, you can find um, our work dealing with comic books and comic book-related media, um, or you can find some of the work that I've been doing lately on somethingghoulish.com, which is going to be horror media-related stuff. And we are both very active on Twitter. Karu is Karu Nagisa, and I am best at 8300, or you can look me up, up by name, Debbie Morse. And love to chat, chat there. Love to have deep conversations, much like much like we did on this show. <laughs> and of course, as always, I, I never do not want to see pet photos. So send me, send me your your cats and your dogs and your rabbits, etc., etc., etc. I just mimed a cat and then a camera to Sharon just before you got to that. Victoria. Well, you can find me on Twitter at Vixen Witch, and the W is two Vs because I like to tweet deliciously. <laughs> um, as far as my work is concerned, the only kind of works of criticism that you'll find of me these days is on this very feed, uh, as I'm sure anybody who listens to Alex's podcast for long enough, you've probably heard my voice before. But unless you enroll in my classes, that's all I really do. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think that I'm a, a, a freelancer that Alex calls in periodically when uh, he just needs somebody to fill up space. <laughs> Absolute Tommy rot. It's mainly for the... Uh, <laughs> and if nothing else, the medical know-how on this one was rather what a important. Oh, yeah. just, just geeking out about medications. <laughs> <laughs> it's so rare we get to do that. Uh, finally, Maya. You can find me on Twitter at Maya Santandrea. Uh, you can look me up on Instagram at the Stunt Lady. That's my handle for most things except for Twitter, where I was an idiot and used my real name. Never mind that. Uh, but you can also hear me on... So I've actually been on a few of the School of Movies podcasts over the last several weeks, so you've probably heard my voice already. But I'm on some of the commissioned shows that were in the commission season for School of Movies. And you can also hear me as a character in Alex's work on the New Century Multiverse, which is also on your podcast streaming platforms um, in a couple of, uh, actually a, a few episodes of Uncivil Outlaw now as both Merlane and as Catherine Holloway, who I have voiced in the past as well. If we're even luckier, then when it is safe to return to our homes, the families we have left behind will greet us with open arms. Hold on to that thought. It will keep you going when things are hardest. But do not forget this. We all are blessed to be here, healthy and alive for the time being. Whatever happens, we are the ones who were loved. So that is going to do it for Knives Out. For reals now, folks, uh, thank you again to Ed Burke, who commissioned this episode. We hope you enjoyed it, Ed. We will be back next week with Maya's commissioned show, and that is Labyrinth, one of our very favorite movies of all time, and one that was so dense and so rich that we held off for year after year until you took us right to its door. You're welcome. <laughs> we will see you for one of the best shows we've ever recorded. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And Knives In.
So let's get straight to stru- but, but, but. <coughs> <laughs> Sorry, I was poisoned. And if you waited all the way to the end, that means you get access to the secret hidden room. And inside is Jenny Nicholson reading us a little bit of trigger warning. Her actual video is an hour and a half long. She really goes into it. But I figured this would be a neat highlight and give you an idea of how the text goes. So out the window, Jake hears a female call of distress, so he goes outside to investigate. It didn't take him long to get down the stairs. A group of students was sitting in the lobby talking about something. He heard the words microaggression and privilege and cisnormative. Wow, all three of those words. Just in that short time he was passing, that must have been a very concise conversation. Annie, just be reasonable. I'm not going to let go of you until you start thinking straight. Stop, Craig, just stop. The words gasped out as the woman clearly fought to hold back sobs. I told you it was over. Jake was still moving toward them, but he stopped as he heard what the woman said. A grimace tugged at his mouth. Lovers quarrel, none of his business. That was an old-fashioned attitude, and he knew it. But almost everything about him was old-fashioned, including his dislike of a woman being mistreated. I guess you could say he shares the sensibilities of a much older man. He swung around, took several more steps until he could see the two of them fairly well. She was petite and blonde, while the guy was good-sized, with dark hair and a short beard. Wow, it's like I'm there. Something was odd about the shape of his head, and after a second, Jake got it. The guy's hair was long enough that he'd pulled it up into a bun on the top of his head. Full respect that Jake is so slow on the uptake that when he sees a man with a bun, he thinks his head has an odd shape. The guy started tugging on the woman, who was actually crying now. Jake said, that's enough, Craig. Let her go. This is none of your business, man. He paused. Are you one of the football players? You're big enough. I like that this other man feels the need to comment on the protagonist's bigness. I'm not a football player and you need to let go of the lady. You don't have to call me a lady, Annie said. She sounded halfway offended. I'm trying to help you. That's no excuse for perpetuating stereotypes and spreading toxic masculinity. I'm not scared of you, Craig shouted. I don't care how big you are. Why is he calling him big again? I know Krav Maga? He had just started some sort of fancy martial arts move when Jake hit him with a left hook to the belly. Those fancy karate moves are no match for some old-fashioned gut punching. Craig went down hard, pounding his face against the concrete walk. You killed him, Annie screeched. She came at him, hissing and spitting. All he'd tried to do was help this woman, and now she wanted to claw his eyes out because he'd hit her boyfriend. You fascist, she screamed. You oppressor. What is he oppressing? The right of men to hit their girlfriends? Jake heard a sudden rush of footsteps behind him and turned to see several black clad figures charging him. He couldn't make out their faces. And when they yelled, fascist, fascist, and the words were muffled, he knew why. They were wearing hoods over their heads. Wait, why did it say he knew why, like he had figured out something clever? He just saw that they were wearing it with his eyeballs. Then they were on him, swinging bicycle chains with locks on them, metal pipes, and other objects turned into clubs. And this peaceful night on the small elite college campus turned into a fight for his life. I love this mystery gang of, like, ninjas that's popped out of the shadows. Why are they wielding 
spike chains and like bats and nunchucks? Is this like the Foot Clan? So that's the end of chapter one. And I have to say, completely sold so far. Jake reached up, closed his right hand around the pipe and wrenched it free of the attacker's grip. He twirled it, jabbed the end into the kid's stomach and sent him staggering backward. A second later, somebody landed on Jake's back and wrapped wiry arms and legs around him. I got him, a female voice yelled. Kill the fascist, down with oppressors, kill him. What are these characters meant to think was going on? What's the misunderstanding? Jake frowned as he saw that the commotion had attracted several dozen students. His frown deepened as he realized they were cheering on the black-clad attackers. Wait a minute, he shouted, knowing he was wasting his time but too angry to care. I didn't do anything wrong. I was just trying to help a woman. Toxic! Toxic! Racist! The black suits were on their feet again and regrouping. Drop them! Drop those weapons! The shouted command came from behind him. He turned, saw the half-dozen uniformed campus cops converging on him. Phelps, deploy taser! He heard a stun gun fire, felt the fierce jab as the first set of needles pierced his shirt and lanced into his flesh to deliver their jolt of electricity. Good writing. He staggered as the shock coursed through him, but he didn't go down. I guess he's just too big.